Good morning, God. We need you this morning. And we confess that every one of us here this morning has stuff that's way beyond our ability to handle. We look at each other and we see people who seem to have it together, who are dressed well, who seem comfortable, but you see us as we really are. And you know how desperately we need you. So I pray that this morning you would speak to us. You would touch us. You would stir our hearts. Bring thoughts to mind. We give you this next hour and ask you to be at work in us and among us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the middle of a series called Missional Living, and by that I mean ordinary, everyday people who have a relationship with Christ, and instead of just worrying about life here and now in this world, you know, education and work and housing and all of the stuff that normally consumes a lot of our energy, Christ followers who are living missionally are thinking about how they can leverage their resources and opportunities to advance Jesus' priorities and to love the world and serve the world in the way that Jesus did. And so I'm excited this morning because Gary Schneider is with us, and Gary is going to be bringing the message. Gary, why don't you come on up, and I want to introduce him to you. Gary Schneider, 15 years ago, reading a newspaper article about the HIV and AIDS pandemic in Zambia, and God began to do something in his heart. And now, after 12 seasons of of serving an organization that he started and founded, Gary is the president and kind of chief visionary of Every Orphan's Hope, and some of our folks have been to Zambia on mission trips. Some of our folks have adopted some of the children there. Uh, Some have helped. This summer in our Jungle Safari Clubs, we learned about kids in Zambia and the work of Every Orphan's Hope. That was part of our mission project. So we're really glad that you're here, Gary. Say hi to people. Oh, you're here. I'm I'm wired. Awesome. So, Gary, you were in the marketplace here in Northern Virginia. You lived among us. You were one of us, and yet now you're doing some crazy stuff. How did that happen? What changed for you? Yeah, I mean, really, ordinary guy, right? Just like most of us out here. I know there's some extraordinary ones at Gateway, but I was with the ordinary. And, you know, that question of calling, you know, did God call me to this? I think most of us are seeking God. And it's when he finds the seeker that he's willing to share with you his heart. And that's really what happened to me in 1999 when I read that newspaper article. And I knew nothing about orphans or Africa or AIDS. But the Lord connected me with a picture in that article of a little boy about the same age as my son. And I'm a father. And so I can understand what it was like for that young boy. And the Lord just shared with me, you know, I love this child, this orphan in Zambia, as much as I love your son. Will you go and tell him? And uh, that was the simple invitation Uh, that I received from the Lord, and it just kind of went from there. That's awesome. Oh, Tony, stand up, would you? Tony is new to Every Orphan's Hope. He's their chief operating officer. And so, so Gary, for you, what are some ways that you've seen God at work in the last year or so? Well, I think Tony coming to us, the way the Lord brought him at at a perfect time when we had the need. He'd given us an expanded vision for Every Orphan's Hope. We didn't have the capacity for that vision. But we said yes to the vision first, and immediately then, God brought us a man like Tony, uh, qualified spiritually, talent-wise, to really help us go forward. What that looks like, Alex, is we have 11 homes right now that we've built for orphans. So we have 88 children that we're caring for in those homes as a family, and we have a 12th one under construction. 
But what God has revealed to us for 2015 is that he wants more. And, you know, it took us 12 years to basically build 12 homes. He's asked us in 2015 to build 10 homes for 80 more orphans. So we definitely needed Tony and a guy like him to come and help us with that. That's awesome. No yeah. pressure, Tony. No but, pressure, you know, Tony. If you're back here next year, we're going to be checking up on it. Rob, yeah. would you come up? We want to pray for Gary and the work of Every Orphan's Hope. And many of you are kind of familiar and have been involved in some way with this ministry. And it's a big part of our mission effort mm-hmm. at Gateway. And it's very cool to get to rub shoulders with you fairly frequently. It's usually about once a year or every other year that we get to actually yeah. be with you. So we're glad you're here. Thank you, Alex. Before I pray, some of you who are financially uh, astute are saying, what is that price tag? And the capital campaign for next year for Every Orphan's Hope, you're looking at about a million dollars to do the, the other 10 homes. There's a lot of other things which you'll talk about. They're going to expand two chicken runs, microenterprise. They've got a piggery, and they're going to teach the kids how to do farming, basically, chickens and pigs and, and farming. So this is a holistic ministry in the sense of trying to take an orphan and really make them productive all the way uh, and uh, to be citizens that really will change Zambia. I mean, that's really the hope. They change their hearts first, they change their circumstances, and they change Zambia. And uh, that's really what it's about. So let's pray for Gary as he comes and brings us the word. Father, you do have a heart for widows and orphans. You've said it very clearly in James that uh, that's really true religion. And so we do pray, Father, that uh, you would anoint Gary right now to bring us your word. What do you want each of us to hear from you through Gary? We also ask, Father, that uh, the gap that is needed for the end of the year for Every Orphan's Hope, the couple hundred thousand that you would bring in, and the million for next year, Father, in the capital campaign, you will touch people's hearts all over this country for the orphans and widows in Zambia. And that, Father, this orphan care model, which has proven to be the most effective one, and everyone else is recognizing this, that you would just expand it and that it would catch on, Father. Why? Because I know you love the orphans and you want to see them changed eternally. Mm. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you again, and I'm very honored to stand among God's people at Gateway and bring a message to you this morning. It's a great responsibility to take a pulpit uh, before God's people and share his word, his truth. So I do that with humility, humbleness, a bit of fear, but uh, excited to be here this morning. The series, as Alex had briefed me on, was about missional living. And, you know, I guess that's another way we can call that is just being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Christ. So what I want to do this morning is give us an example Uh, from the Old Testament, of Elijah, the prophet, and how really God used his first experience living missionally for God as a kind of a boot camp for all of us to look at and examine this morning and see four characteristics that God looks for in those who are living missionally for God, living on purpose for him. And I think you'll see those characteristics in Elijah as we go through the scripture. We're in 1 Kings this morning. Chapter 17, starting in verse 8. But while you're turning there, and also I think the the scriptures will be on on the screen as well. I'm just going to go through 8 through 24, a couple scriptures at a time. And there's four characteristics I want you to look for in Elijah. Now remember, in, in the book of James in the New Testament, 
James writes about Elijah, and he talks about how Elijah prayed that there would be no rain in the land, and it was so. And then he prayed again, and the rain came after many years. And what he says about Elijah is that he is a man just like us, an ordinary man. There's nothing particularly special about Elijah, just like us. He was just a man who was after God's heart and pursuing God, and then God put a call on his life to be a prophet, to speak truth to his people who had gone astray, and specifically to a king. So let me just tell you, I'll just give you a brief summary of what happened in the first part of this passage, verses 1 through 7, so you have a little backstory on where we're going to jump in at verse 8. So Elijah is called by God to come down from the mountain, the Tishbite that he is, and walk up to King Ahab, who the Bible says was the most wicked and evil king that Israel had ever had. And God gave him a simple command. I want you to walk up to Ahab and speak what I'm about to speak to you. So he went to Ahab and he spoke these words. He said, there will be no rain on the land until I speak again. Now, I don't know what it would be like to walk in front of a powerful, most evil king like that and basically say, I'm a nobody who's come down from the mountain and I'm speaking on behalf of God, and here's what I have to tell you. There's going to be a famine in your land as you're our king, and God's going to withhold the rain. Well, Elijah does that because he had a word from the Lord to do it, and he obeyed that. One of the first characteristics we see in Elijah that I think is important in missional living is to have faith and obedience. Obviously, Elijah knew his God well enough that when he spoke to him, he could trust what God was saying. And he had the obedience to immediately go to King Ahab and speak this word to him, and so he did. And so we see immediately that Elijah is a man of faith and obedience. That's what's happened at this point, and interestingly enough, Elijah, who spoke about this famine that was coming, was obedient to God, I want you to take note that he will also suffer with all the other people under the same famine that will hit that land. So even though he had faith in God and he obeyed God, he's also going to be suffering in the famine along with all of God's people in Israel. But the Lord is watching out for him, and so he says to him, Elijah, I want you to go at once to the Kareth Ravine. And in this ravine, there's a brook there, and I'm going to give you water from that brook. And I'm also directing the ravens to come and bring you food, which is bread and meat. And just wait there, and I'll provide for you. And so we do see God, even though Elijah's in the midst of this famine in this country, God is promising to care for him, to provide for him. And so I think it's interesting to look at that and say, you know, that's awesome. God provides. But I mean, honestly, if it was us, and we were told to go sit by a brook, and drink that water, and wait for the raven to come in the morning, and to come in the evening, with some scraps of bread, and maybe some bones of meat that they've picked up off the trash can, or the trash heaps, we wouldn't really say that we're being blessed by God. Certainly by our standards, that we know it. But God is providing. He is faithful to Elijah. And so that's where we're at as we come upon verse 8, and Elijah's been there for some time now at the brook, But of course, there's been no rain in the land. So I don't know how long a period of time that took, but the brook was drying up. And just as the brook is having its last little drips of water come through, God speaks again to Elijah. And he tells him, and this is where we're going to pick it up in verse 8, says this, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. 
So, Elijah, acting in faith and obedience, goes to Zarephath. Now, I need you to understand that, again, we're in a famine. And, you know, when you read a narrative like this, we kind of just jump over that and say, oh, okay, he said, get up and go. So he went. And what is it? Maybe around the corner, a couple blocks, a couple miles. Well, Zarephath is about 90 miles from where he's at at the Kareth Ravine. So God is asking him to take a trek in the middle of a famine. And, and by the way, you've had food and water, but there's no mention here that God's going to continue to do that with the ravens. The narrative just doesn't tell us that. But that's a huge step of faith for Elijah to move out towards Zarephath in this famine. Not only that, but God has told him that a widow is going to provide for him. Now, in Elijah's time as a Jewish man, being provided for by a widow is absolutely humiliating. It's not something that would be normal. You would not expect that. You would certainly not believe that that would be possible, especially a widow knowing that she's living in the same famine under the same circumstances as everyone else, has even fewer means to provide for herself, and yet God is saying, go there, and I'm going to provide for you through a widow. Well, how does this happen? How does God do this? I think first we need to see, in, again, in Elijah, that not only was he full of faith in his God and obedient, but he had a willingness. And I think that's one of the secrets of living the missional life, is coming to God with a willingness to follow him, to identify ourselves with our God, to know him well enough that we say, Lord, no matter what my eyes see, no matter what reason I have in my mind to believe that this seems impossible to travel 90 miles and then to expect to be fed by a widow there, I'm going to believe, and I'm willing to believe you, and I'm willing to continue to take these steps of faith. And so he goes. Sometimes missional living will cost you. And I think even as we see Elijah here, this is not easy. This is not anything that we would call a blessed life for Elijah. But he's following God, and his faith is in him. Verse 10 says, so he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, now, <laughs> again, a 90-mile trek, famine. I have to believe by the time he gets there, he is hot, he is tired, he is thirsty, he is delusional, completely weary. And he comes to the town gate, and he probably found a place to sit down. And he looks up. And there's probably a lot of people at the town gate, but he sees this woman, and she's got an armful of sticks. And he looks right at her, and he shouts out, Excuse me, could you bring me a cup of water? In that time, it was an obligation that anyone had for a stranger. If they asked for a cup of water, you would oblige, and you would do that. So it wasn't unusual for that to be asked. But I want you to see what Elijah says next. As she was going, verse 11, to get it, he called, oh, bring me, please, a piece of bread. I love that he said, please. I think he had complete faith that God was going to provide, but just in case, he'd be really nice and say, you know, please, please bring me some bread too. I'm really thirsty, really hungry, so do that for me, would you please? Not only is Elijah exercising great faith and obedience, but he's looking at this woman and believing what God also said, which is he would direct this widow to provide for him. And I want you to see what happens next. 
Verse 12. Again, I'm imagining this widow with these sticks in her arms, famished. This prophet calls out to her to bring him a cup of water and a loaf of bread. And she turns around with those sticks in her arms. And she says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's not exhibiting an ounce of faith. She's not exhibiting anything that resembles faith that she's going to be able to provide what Elijah has asked. As a matter of fact, what she's expressing to him is a complete lack of faith, a fatalistic view. This is it, mister. I've gathered my sticks. Life is so hopeless, so desperate. I only have enough flour and oil left to make one more meal for me and my son, a widow and an orphan, and then we're going to die. We're done. We give up. We're tired. We're worn out. We have nothing. We especially don't have anything for you. In spite of what Elijah's physical body is demanding at this moment, in spite of what his eyes are observing and this widow with her arm full of sticks, in spite of what he's hearing the widow say, the cry of the widow, her desperateness, her faithlessness, her fatalistic view of what's happening, he does not hear those words. In spite of all that, he's remembering the character of the God of Israel. He's remembering that he is faithful, that he is good, that he doesn't lie, that he fulfills his promises, that he's a God who has the whole earth in his hands, and he has promised to provide. Even though she's explaining to him how desperate she is and how impossible it is for her to do what he has asked, Elijah looks at her and says, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. In other words, go home, get your meal prepared, make your loaf of bread, but bring it to me. And from what you have, bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. And then he tells her how this is possible. He says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. You know, what Elijah heard her say was not how she had only the little flour, only the little oil. He heard the very first word she said, and he knew that that was prompted by the Spirit that had put that on her heart. She said, as surely as the Lord your God lives. That's all he needed to hear. He didn't hear the rest of that. He knew that as God promised, he had directed a widow to provide for him. And when she spoke those words, she meant to say that to him to prove her point. That as surely as the Lord your God lives, I only have this or I don't have that. I simply don't have what you're asking for. But what Elijah heard her say was, as surely as the Lord your God lives. And he keyed on that. And that's how he was able to say to her, don't worry. Go and prepare this as I've asked you to do. Bring it back to me. And as surely as the Lord lives and he has said, he will provide for you and your oil and your flour will not run out. So, We see the widow at that moment, whatever moved in her heart, she believed Elijah. She believed what he said. And so she went and did what he asked. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Listen, gateway people, I need to ask you, 
Because I have to ask myself this very same question. If we were in those widows' shoes, and God came to us and said, I want you to give me everything you have, everything you have left for you and your son, I want you to give it to me. How would that make us feel? Would we be able to do that by faith? It's a tough question. But in her desperation, this widow, prompted, I believe, by the Holy Spirit and directed by God, put her faith in what Elijah said, the words of God that she heard from his mouth. We can see that many times throughout Scripture, the promises of God are often dependent on our obedience. It's not that his promises lack anything to be fulfilled other than God said, I would do it. But a lot of times in Scripture, what we find is it's our obedience in response to his promise that activates that provision. So she went and she made that loaf of bread. That was it. That's all she had left. She took it to Elijah based on the promise. But she had not seen any provision yet. It wasn't until she went back to her home that that promise was fulfilled. It took faith and obedience first in his promise before she ever saw the provision. Amen? Verse 17. Now, things seem to be going pretty well. Elijah and the widow and the orphan are eating. God is sustaining them. He's providing for them. The oil and the flour has been there every day. I'm sure their fellowship has been sweet. And I just try to put myself in that home, that very humble home, I'm sure, with this orphan and the widow and this prophet. And imagine as Elijah's testifying to who God is, the God of Israel, the God that he believes in, and encouraging her to believe in this God. And then all of a sudden, in verse 17... Let's see what happens. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? I have to imagine at this moment, try to put yourself there, very intimate setting. This woman has her son maybe in her arms. He's no longer breathing. He's dead. She's angry. There's a great contradiction, I'm sure, for her and Elijah as they stand there in that moment, knowing that the Lord has been providing for them, sustaining them miraculously up to this point, and then without God saying anything to Elijah, not giving him any warning that this was coming. Remember, he has spoken to Elijah every step of the way. Elijah, by faith, has obeyed. But suddenly, he's sitting there, And there's a woman, a widow, with her dead orphan son, and she's upset with him, and asking, why did you bring this to my house? I want to pause our story right there for a minute, because it's so hard to try to put ourselves in this situation. If you've never been in the home of a widow and an orphan in a very impoverished situation, all we have really is maybe a few stories, a few pictures that we've seen, but we've never actually been there. And so, how do I connect you to that widow and that orphan? And I'm going to use just one little thing that's just ubiquitous among us all, and around the world, actually, and it's, it's one of these little plastic bags. You probably, like I do in our house, we have, I mean, this is for carrying things home from the store, right? What we buy at the store, we bring home in these. Well, we have like a five-gallon jar just stuffed full of these. We, we save even these, you know, for someday we might use them again. 
But these are so ubiquitous, they are everywhere in the world. I mean, you can go into every impoverished country and still find these bags. So I want to connect you today to the orphan and the widow through this plastic bag. And I want to tell you a story that happened several years ago at Every Orphan's Hope. You know, we have our Camp Hope ministry, which reaches out to orphans in the communities where we serve in Zambia. And these orphans come to a camp for a week, and they're fed not only physical food and nourishment, but they're also fed the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, back in 2003, at our very first camp, we had a widow who brought three of her children to the camp. But her youngest son was only about a year old at the time, so she had him strapped to her back in the typical wrap that you see African women with. And so her other two children were attending the camp, but her youngest one, David, was on her back. And she served at that camp because she wanted to glorify God and do what she could to provide for the orphans that were there as well. So she joined with our team, and she was cooking all week long, standing over open fires with this big paddle, stirring the beans and cooking the rice and the chicken. And every day she was there before we arrived, and every day she was there when we left, still cooking for the 150 or so orphans that were at our camp. And she really caught my eye, because I thought, you know, we've come as missionaries to serve the children, to bring the Word of God, to bring these resources to them, to bless them. And I saw a sister in Christ over there who stood over that open fire all day long with her baby on her back, serving Christ as well, and serving the orphans as well. Her name was Clara. Three years later, Clara, who was a widow, uh, was on her deathbed. She was dying from complications from AIDS. Her husband had died a couple of years prior to that, prior to our camp. And Clara was a believer, and the church that she went to was one of our partners in that camp, and she had called the church leaders to come and pray for her. She knew this was the end. And she also called a couple of our staff members who'd known Clara and her children ever since camp. And as she laid there, and I wasn't there at the time, but our staff was, and they described the situation as, you can imagine, very desperate, laying on a mat on a dirt floor in her hut with her three children standing by her side. And yet they said what we saw in her eyes defied what we saw in her body. Her body was wasted away, but her eyes were on fire. And she was asking everyone that was there, the church leaders and our staff, I am believing God's promise for my children. The scripture says he's a father to the fatherless in Psalm 68.5. And I'm holding on to that promise until I see an answer to that promise before I go to be with him. And she began looking around that small hut and asking, are you the one that he has sent to take care of my children? Because she had no one to care for them. No other extended family. They'd all been stigmatized because of AIDS. Nobody wanted the children. She had no one to leave her children to. But she said, my God promises to be a father to the fatherless. We had just built our third home, the My Father's House Orphan Home. Five beds had already been filled. We had three remaining. Two for boys and one for a girl. Michael, David, and Mary. And our staff knew at that very moment as they stood there that God had prepared for this moment. He had prepared to answer this promise for his daughter to care for her children. And he did it because other believers, prompted in their heart, prompted in response to be faithful and obedient to what God asked them to do, some months, maybe even a year earlier, said, Lord, I'll give. I'll give to help build a home for an orphan and a widow. I really don't know what you're going to do with that or what that's going to look like, but I'll obey by faith, and I gave. And it just so happened on that day, as this daughter of God cried out for a promise to be fulfilled, there was a house ready 
with three beds remaining. When we accepted and said, we'll take your children, we have a mother for them, we have a house for them, we're going to provide for them, we're going to raise them, about four hours later, she died. The very next morning, the children didn't even go to her burial. They just came over to the My Father's House number three, and everything that they owned, every possession they had for the, between the three of them fit in one of these plastic bags. That was it. And you know, you, you look at that and you say, how did God bless this widow? How did he bless these children? Did they have much? Not by our standards. This was everything they had. What kind of inheritance did she leave them? I think she left them one of the greatest inheritance we as parents can leave our children. She showed them who God was. The inheritance she left them was faith in my God, who said, this is what I promised to do for you. I'm a father to the fatherless. And so those children walked over to that house with that plastic bag and their total possessions right there, and they had a brand new house, and they had beds to sleep in, and they had a woman to call mother, and they had five brothers and sisters. And today, Mary, David, and Michael are alive, well, thriving, and following Christ. Amen? So it's hard for us to imagine this situation when we've never seen it before. But I can tell you that Elijah at that moment did not waver in his faith, did not waver in his obedience. And as he's got this woman with her dead son in front of her, and her grief-stricken, heartbroken, shattered dreams, he says some of the most powerful words of faith in the Scripture. He looks at her and says, Give me your son. Give me your son. Now, has the Lord said he's going to do anything here? No. But here's another characteristic I want you to see of Elijah, and one that's important, a characteristic that will reflect as we live missionally. Not only faith and obedience, but compassion and intercession. He had compassion on her in this moment. God had not said he would do anything, but he knew his God well. He knew what his God was capable of. And he looked at her and said, give me your son. And then he took him upstairs to where he was staying. He laid him across the bed, again, humiliating himself as a Jewish man, knowing laying on this dead body, touching this dead body is defiling me. He doesn't care about any of that. He has compassion on this child and this mother, and he lays across this boy, and he cries out to God, Father, give this boy back his life. God hears Elijah's cry. He answers him, and he brings the boy back to life. It's an amazing story. We don't even know the boy's name. We see the very first person that God raised from the dead in the Scriptures is a nameless orphan in the home of a grief-stricken widow in the midst of a famine. But there was a man of faith there, a man of obedience there, a man living missionally on purpose for God who interceded and had compassion and cried out to God for the impossible, and God did it. Why did he do that? Well, there's all sorts of reasons, of course. He gave the boy back his life because this widow had no other way to be provided for. He did it mainly, though, for his glory. And we're going to see that as we finish this scripture. Verse 21, as I just described, he stretched himself out, laid on the boy. Elijah cried out. God answered. Verse 22 and 23. But I want to conclude with verse 24. As he brought the boy back down, alive for his mother. 
And she considered all that she had seen, all that she had experienced from this man of God. All the provision that was there, while that was important, that still hadn't convinced her who his God was. But in verse 24, we see, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Because the lesson here wasn't about God's ability to provide. It was about turning our eyes to the provider. Not the provision, but the provider. And that's what Elijah wanted to do. He wanted her to see who his God was. The God who provides the provision is amazing, but he's really the provider of life. And through his word comes life. Through his word comes truth. And his truth, his word, is life. And that's what she learned that day. And I believe that the testimony that went out in that pagan area of Zarephath was not about the oil and the flour and the bread. It was about the God of Israel, who when He speaks, He gives life. You know, that's Elijah in the Old Testament. I want to just quickly have you jump to Luke chapter 7. Jesus is walking into a town with His disciples And as he's coming to this town gate, there's a procession coming out of the town. It's a funeral procession. It's a widow, and her orphan son has died. And as they're approaching, Jesus sees that, and the Scripture says he has compassion on her, and he stops the procession. And he looks at her, and he says, don't cry. Sounds eerily similar to what Elijah did, doesn't it? He stops this widow in the funeral procession, looks at her, says, don't cry. He puts his hand on the coffin. He prays. He intercedes. He has compassion. And the boy is brought to life. A nameless orphan in the New Testament raised to life by the Word of God, the truth of God, through Jesus Christ. Gateway, I'm so thankful that you have partnered with Every Orphan's Hope to live missionally. To live with us. You might not go with us, but you're with us when we go into the hut of a widow and an orphan. And we proclaim the truth of God through Jesus Christ to them, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And many times we don't see the provision yet that He's provided, that He's promised, but we proclaim it. We stand there in front of them and tell them, that is who our God is. That is the truth of who He is. He is the Lord who provides. He is the Lord who gives us life and truth. And so Gateway, thank you that you have partnered with us to live missionally in front of orphans and widows in Zambia, who the world says there's no hope for, but we go in Christ's name and say, yes, there is hope for tomorrow and for today. So thank you. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. We want to close this morning in prayer. And I want you to spend a couple of minutes just listening for God's voice here. Father, we give this time to you. Thank you so much for speaking through Gary. And I pray that right now you would bring to mind if there are um, things that he said that you want to resonate in our hearts or to rattle around in our brains, I pray that you would bring them to mind right this moment. There might be somebody here this morning for whom all of this sounded really weird because they don't have um, a relationship with you, God. 
and they're still trying to figure it out. And I pray that you would make yourself known to them. I pray that you would put it on their heart to continue pursuing you and asking questions and acting even as this widow did on what little bit of faith that she had, trying to figure out, is there something you have for me, Lord? And for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us to just take a minute now and think about how we're doing before you in the areas of faith and obedience and compassion and intercession. Pray that you would bring to light any area where we need to do some growing, Lord. And Father, I ask that you would move among us now. There's some who um, maybe you're tapping them on the heart and asking them to just get more information about every orphan's hope or about gateway or about you and what it would mean to walk with you. And there are others who it's not just about information, it's about doing something. It might be about going to Zambia. It might be about helping with a trip next year or some other mission project that we have here. It may be about adopting somebody this Christmas and serving. But if there are people here this morning that need to be moved, then Holy Spirit, I ask you to move them and prompt them. The desire of our heart, Lord, is that those of us who belong to you, we'd be useful in your hands, that we would make a difference in our family, in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our circle of friends. We want to be living on purpose for you. So I ask that you would use us this morning and this week to do that. Help us to see where the needs are. Help us to see the opportunities and help us to be bold enough to act in faith and to obey because we want to bring honor and glory to you. And we ask all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.